This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Here's a bit of history on the growth of interfaith education here in West Michigan. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, there were two very similar efforts that took shape. One in Muskegon and the surrounding Lakeshore area, the Jewish-Christian Dialogue, and, and that was led by Sylvia Kaufman, and she was organizing conferences and lectures during that time. That was happening as the Interfaith Dialogue Association was doing the same in the Grand Rapids metro area. Albeit, that effort was more inclusive, allowing for participation from traditions outside the Judeo-Christian ones. In later years, the Muskegon Group and IDA, along with Grand Valley State University, morphed together into the Kaufman Interfaith Institute, Well, during those early days on the lakeshore, one scholar who contributed greatly to the growth of the work was Jewish Bible scholar Dr. Amy Jill Levine, who presented on several occasions. A few years ago, she was here through the auspices of Kaufman for a lecture at Calvin Seminary. Once again, she provided an excellent opportunity for Christians to better grasp their Jewish heritage. I've had it in the back of my mind to have Dr. Levine here on Common Threads for a while, but it was just a few weeks ago when I became aware of her most recent book, The Bible With and Without Jesus, that I thought, okay, it's time. By the way, she authored that book, co-authored that book, with Mark Brettler. A little bit about our guest, Amy Jill Levine, is a professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Vanderbilt University. She holds a B.A. from Smith College, and her M.A. and Ph.D. come from Duke University. Uh, She also has several honorary doctorates from multiple schools. Her books include The Misunderstood Jew, The Church and the Scandal of the Jewish Jesus, Short Stories by Jesus, The Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi, The Meaning of the Bible, What the Jewish Scriptures and the Christian Old Testament Can Teach Us, along with several children's books. So we welcome to Common Threads, Amy Jill Levine. Hello, AJ. Hi, it's good to be with you. Yes, yes. Uh, Before anything, can you talk a little bit about what you might remember from those early days on the lakeshore when you were brought in? Uh, uh, I don't know how many times you were brought in, but you were brought in, and I think I might have mentioned in an email to you that I still have a couple of old cassettes of your uh, lectures. <laughs> it's frightening to think about. That was, that was a very long time ago. Um, I was delighted to hear your reference to Sylvia Kaufman, um, who continues to be a leader in this type of, of interreligious and ecumenical dialogue, um, working with the schools that are there, of which you have a number, um, working especially with folks coming out of the, the various types of Dutch reform tradition was fascinating to me. Um, working with undergraduates, working with churches of all sorts, uh, working with Jews who wanted to know about Christianity and Christians who wanted to know about Judaism. There could not have been a better place, and I don't think there is a better place than, than that general area 
for honest exploration. And one other thing, now that I'm thinking about it, um, the people there were um, firmly grounded in their own tradition. They didn't believe in sacrificing the particulars of their own tradition on the altar of interface sensitivity. So the conversations were honest, and people were not looking for a lowest common denominator. They were looking for ways of understanding their neighbors and for better understanding themselves. What a fabulous place. Well, thank you. We like it. <laughs> and, I should think. Yeah, and and really, uh, a, a number of us who are involved in Kaufman and IDA uh, and other interfaith efforts, when we travel around the country, we we all of a sudden realize, hey, we do have a, a special place here for whatever reason. I don't know if it's in the water. We have that, that beautiful Lake Michigan that supplies us uh, with our uh, uh, H2O nutrients, so perhaps that might be it. But whatever it is, uh, it, we have uh, actually... Uh, did you ever meet Lillian Siegel, who founded IDA? I believe I did. Okay, yeah. She moved to Philadelphia uh, over 20 years ago, and she was amazed at how progressive we were in compared to what was going on in Philadelphia. That was kind of hard to believe, but I, I do believe it. And so, yes, we, we do appreciate that. And tell us also, before we get into the book, about your position at Vanderbilt and what that is like in that culture. You are Jewish and you teach New Testament. That's not something you find every day. Well, although it's becoming more and more common because the New Testament is in fact part of Jewish history. So it's about time Jews started engaging in in, uh, understanding where we came from, which includes the first century for which the New Testament's one of our best sources of Jewish history. Um, so my jo- my primary job uh, is to train people who want to be Christian clergy or Christian religious educators uh, how to read the New Testament, which is, I-, I grant, a weird job for a Jew, but, you know, somebody's got to do it. Um, on occasion, uh, I've been here for 27 years, so I'm, I'm kind of used to it now, and I guess my students are kind of used to me. Um, on occasion, I get a little bit of pushback from students who don't know me saying, how can, quote unquote, a non-believer um, teach us anything? And what typically happens at the end of the class is they say something along the lines of, uh, you've introduced me to a Jesus I never knew and a Jesus who makes sense uh, and whom I can follow. And thank you for that gift. I'm, I'm curious. Obviously, you're not there to, quote unquote, convert them in any position whatsoever. But I'm wondering, first of all, have you ever had encounters with students who came in with one religion and left with another, or left with no religion, or have you had the uh, experience of somebody coming in from a, a very strong evangelical conservative Christian viewpoint and then leaving kind of United Church of Christ-ish? <laughs> um it sounds to me like your question is, is along the lines of, did you take people from the more conservative end of the spectrum to the more liberal end of the spectrum? Um, I, well, I've had students go in a variety of directions. I've had students become more committed uh, to their Christian faith um, and, and becoming more firm believers, because now they've got some historical background and some theological language to back up what they were already feeling in their hearts. So students go through at Vanderbilt Divinity School, which is a non-denominational, so we've got folks from from various and no types of religious backgrounds, 
Um, and there's a lot of movement back and forth. Um, when a student comes to me with faith questions, and they often do, because the academic study of the Bible can be a little bit scary, um, when when it is pointed out, gee, the Gospels don't agree on everything, and gee, uh, we seem to get different readings from different books as to when Jesus is going to come back, or how we should behave, or what we can and cannot do, or what we should or should not believe. That makes a number of students nervous, and, and in my case, my job is to say this ought not to make you nervous. Um, this diversity of opinion is something that you probably want to celebrate, because why, theologically speaking, would you think that the Word of God only speaks in one voice to one person? And it's the same thing for people who teach Hebrew Bible or Old Testament or Tanakh, whatever you want to call it. Um, disagreements among the texts are a sign of a lively religious mind that's interested in preserving a number of voices uh, rather than a monolith. So I think I, I'm in the position of fixing people's faith or helping them get back on the path if that's, in fact, where they want to go. You know, I had an incident several years ago, and I'd like your comment on this. And tell me if you think I, I did the right thing or said the right thing. So we have this community picnic for our neighborhood, and I attended one time, and I see three women whom I know sitting at a picnic table, and I walk up to them. Two of them are hardcore evangelical Christians. Um, I, I don't know what stripe, but I do know that they're very, very serious about their Christianity and about their... Um, uh, their effort to encourage people to look at the gospel. The third woman is a 90-something-year-old, She somewhere between 89 and 91, 90-year-old uh, woman named Dorothy, who's Jewish. And as I'm walking up to them, I hear Dorothy laughing uproariously. The other, the other two women are not laughing. And so I come in, hey, Dorothy, well, hello. And then I greeted the other two as well. And uh, it turns out that Dorothy, uh, uh, between her giggles, saying, they're trying to get me to be Christian, and I keep telling them I'm Jewish. And the way she was saying it, it was as if they were, were telling her, you need to be president of the United States. And she was saying, but I was born in Japan. I mean, so it's like, <laughs> you know, or, or they were asking her to consider gender reassignment. It just, it, it, it just seems so absurd to her that, that she could not, it's almost as if she could not ever become a Christian. And so... I entered into the conversation, and they were talking about, about Jesus, and I said, you know, the problem here is you both have two different job descriptions. You, you know, both of you uh, uh, understand Messiah. Now, and Dorothy, she did not have the wherewithal to actually say this herself, but I said, you know, the Jews have a different understanding of what a Messiah is. They, they expect different things. Jesus did not fill that expectation, but he filled the expectation for Christians, and I... I listed a couple of, uh, of uh, uh, items, what, what a Jewish Messiah is supposed to do, what a Christian Messiah is supposed to do. And after I, I, I said that, uh, Dorothy said something like, yeah, what he said. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then I, I, I moved on to do better things in the world, I guess. I don't know. I just, I just left that conversation. But when it comes down to it, isn't that one of the central issues between how— Jews and Christians read the Bible? 
It's one of them. Um, we define terms different ways, whether the, defini- the, the messianic job description differs, um, our definition of the day of rest or the Sabbath will differ, um, our definition of priesthood differs, um, our definition of the biblical canon differs, um, and we tend to talk past each other rather than recognizing that these gaps in communication are because we haven't started with the basics. Um, the idea is we simply don't know each other. Um, so that when my Jewish friends, for example, would complain about somebody knocking on their door and saying, you know, have you met Jesus, and they find this offensive, my response to them is they're, they're not doing this uh, because they hate you, they're doing this because they love you, and they've got something very, very precious, the most precious thing that they have, and they want to share it with you, and that's an act of grace. Um, so there, there can be more graceful response, gracious responses and less gracious responses. Um, and to Christians to say, before you start evangelizing Jews, you might want to know something about um, the various Jewish views of Messianic speculations. And sometimes it's helpful to look at Paul's epistle to the Romans, where Paul says, in effect, a hardening has come upon Israel, which means the Jewish people, um, until all the Gentiles have been brought in, and that hasn't happened yet. So if, if you want to have good resource allocation, you might want to deal with people other than the Jews and leave us for last. And there are a variety of ways of approaching this. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Professor Amy Jill Levine, and we're talking about the book, the Bible with and without Jesus. Let me tell you uh, uh, another uh, anecdote briefly. Um, I once, actually, he was a guest on our, our program, uh, oh, my, probably 20 years ago. So I came into contact with this gentleman who was a Messianic Jew. And how he became a Messianic Jew is interesting. He was a member of our local conservative congregation uh, here in uh, Grand Rapids. And uh, he told me one time that he approached the rabbi and other people in the synagogue and basically was saying, can we talk about Jesus? I'd just like to know who he was uh, and, and how he fits into everything. And nobody would have that conversation with him, not the rabbi, not any uh, of the uh, senior members. It, 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 just, it was just, we don't talk about that. And he ended up becoming a Messianic Jew. And then one time I was speaking to one of my friends in the Jewish community, and, and I said, oh, by the way, whatever happened to so-and-so? Oh, he became a Chabadnik. <laughs> <laughs> so I've and I have not seen I believe he moved out of the area and I've not seen him since but I would love to have a conversation uh about his particular spiritual journey um but is that what you have found in the Jewish community that that there's just this this reluctance to speak about Jesus in the first place um I I've seen less these days a reluctance than a curiosity um, like, what are our neighbors thinking, and, and why do these churches have these big, you know, lowercase t's on the top, and, and what's going on with Christmas and Easter? Um, so the, the previous generations were, you know, as one of my aunts said to me when I got into New Testament study, why are you studying that hateful anti-Semitic book? And I said to her, have you ever read it? And she said, no, why would I read that hateful anti-Semitic book? And that's just ignorance. That doesn't help anybody. Um, so what I'm seeing now is curiosity. Um, I've made the argument for quite a while that the New Testament is part of Jewish history, so Jews probably ought to know what's in it. Um, the New Testament, for me personally, has made me a better Jew, 
because uh, it's filled in gaps in my history, and it's prevented alternative pathways that Jews did not take. And it's always nice to know what, what path you didn't take as you, as you came to be who you are. Um, and the New Testament has, for better or worse, uh, influenced how Christians have treated Jews over the centuries. So it helps to know where some of the more dangerous interpretations have come from and, and find the historical and literary um, contextualization of them. So I'm seeing, you know, curiosity and respect um, and sometimes confusion, because biblical texts can be confusing. Um, and I, I think part of it is, if we take seriously the idea that we're supposed to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, and we're supposed to love the stranger who dwells among us because we were strangers in the land of Egypt, it's very hard to say you love your neighbor or you love the person who's a stranger to you, like part of a different community, if you don't take seriously what that neighbor or stranger takes seriously, which means the neighbor or stranger's religion. Very good point. Um, now, you say that uh, uh, Jews can say to Christians, you are not wrong to interpret the Bible as you do. Uh, because Christians follow the, the, the code of Noah, uh, and but Christians often aren't able to say to Jews, you're not wrong in your interpretation. Does that get get sticky? Um, I need to rephrase your question. Sure, go ahead. Because uh, it's very difficult to talk about Christians globally. Um, about 10 years ago, the Pontifical Biblical Commission, which is the, the Vatican-appointed think tank for people who do Bible studies, on which, by the way, I would really like a seat if any of your listeners have influence. The Pontifical Biblical Commission produced a document dealing with the Jewish scriptures as part of the Christian Bible. And among the, the various helpful points it made was that Jewish readings are correct for Jews, and it would be good for Christians here, Catholics, to know something about those interpretations. Um, it suggested, I think, entirely correctly, uh, that if you read what the Church would call the Old Testament, so Genesis or Isaiah or the Psalms, if you read that through Christian lenses, you're going to see Jesus on every page. But if you don't read it through Christian lenses, if you read the same text, the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, through Jewish lenses, you're not going to see Jesus at all. So therefore, the issue is not whether you're right or whether you're wrong. The issue is what's your interpretive frame? I think that's spot on. So Christians, like the Roman Catholic Church officially, should be able to say to Jews, oh, we see how you get those readings. We see why you do not find uh, Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53, the so-called suffering servant passage. I see why you don't see a virginal conception in Isaiah 7. I see why you don't see a trinity in Genesis chapter 1. And I think Jews should be able to say to Christians, ah, now I understand where you got that. It's all reading uh, through lenses, and it's reading in light of the traditions of which we are both separate heirs. You bring up something I was planning on asking. When you, when you say, talk about um, finding the Trinity in Genesis, I was curious, is there precedent in the Hebrew Bible for the Holy Spirit? I, I believe that most Christians would say that the Holy Spirit was not introduced until the New Testament. Is there a Holy Spirit in, 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 in the, the Hebrew Scriptures that, that you can say, well, this, sure. this could be it? Sure, depending upon how you want to translate. Um, the Hebrew word ruach, um, like, think of at the end, like bach, uh, can mean wind or breath or spirit. 
Uh, and it's a matter of how we choose to translate. In fact, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, plays on that. The Spirit blows where it will, and it's both the wind and, and the Holy Spirit. Um, so at the beginning of Genesis, when the Spirit of God, the wind of God, the mighty wind, this Ruach Elohim, uh, floats over the face of the deep, if you're a Christian and you see that word spirit, you might or wind, you might go, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. Um, or you might say a Ruach Elohim, where the word Elohim means God, but it also in Hebrew can have the connotation of mighty. Um, so you can read it as a mighty wind, which I think was a, a movie. Um, uh, or you can read it as the Holy Spirit. Um, the, the Spirit of God shows up a lot through the Hebrew Scriptures, um, and if you want to interpret that as the same Holy Spirit that uh, descends on Jesus at the baptism, or through which uh, the Virgin Mary proclaims her Magnificat at the beginning of, of the Gospel of Luke, you can do that. Is it there? It's floating around. Literally. Um, Literally. <laughs> uh, one thing that I was not aware of until I read the book that we're talking about today is the other book you're associated with, the Jewish Annotated New Testament. Tell us about that. What is it, and how does it contribute to the greater work? <laughs> also like three to four years out of my life. <laughs> um, Mark Brettler, who teaches at Duke University, and I co-edited the Jewish Annotated New Testament. Um, Mark had already edited the, um, the Jewish Study Bible, which is to look at the Tanakh and say, well, how have Jews understood these various passages over time? So it includes uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and Josephus and Philo, first century Jewish writers, and the rabbinic tradition and so on. Uh, and when Mark got done with that, he and Don Krauss, who was our Oxford editor, said, you know, what are we going to do next? And I think it was Don who said, well, how about a Jewish annotated New Testament? And Mark said, I need a Jewish New Testament scholar. And Don Krauss said, I've got the one for you. Um, so uh, Mark and I, together with our Oxford editor, collaborated on this. It is a fully annotated New Testament, every single book in the New Testament, um, looking at the text as it would have made sense to a first century Jew, um, when Jesus or Paul or James or one of the Petrine letters or, or the book of Revelation says something, how does that fit into Jewish literature and thought at the time? And then in the back, we have a multitude of essays on who were the Pharisees and what was the Jewish calendar and what was the temple like and what was Jewish family life like and how did Jews think about gender and sexuality or um, how did Jews look at Jesus over time or look at Paul over time? Uh, look at the Virgin Mary over time. How was Jesus understood in Jewish art and literature? Um, so we did the first volume um, uh, in, in 2011, and then in 2017, we produced a greatly expanded and enhanced second edition. And would you say that uh, the, the Christian response has been overwhelmingly positive to that? Pretty much. Um, we know it's being used in New Testament courses. Um, it's about to come out in a German translation, which is great, um, sponsored by a church consortium. Uh, and we just signed the rights for an Italian translation, which will be targeted primarily to Italian Catholics. Um, uh, I get lots of letters from Christians, particularly ministers, saying, uh, thank you so much for this. Uh, what we did in cases where we know that a text or passage could could lead to an anti-Jewish interpretation or has often been interpreted in an anti-Jewish manner, we pull out little gray boxes saying, you know, you, you may have heard this, but we say to you, you might want to go here instead. So the text functions, I'm not sure this is the best word for it, but it's kind of like a prophylactic 
to prevent Christians from bearing false witness against Jews and Judaism, and to prevent ministers and religious educators when teaching the New Testament from conveying um, unintended anti-Jewish interpretations. Could you give us an example of something that could be used, it could be weaponized, and you are, uh, you know, offering a force against that? How much time do we have? Right now we've got f- right now we've got four <laughs> minutes according to uh, Rick here. So if you can do that well, in four sorry, minutes, I'll, I'll rattle off two or three. Okay. Um, it's it, it, it. There's a common stereotype that first century Judaism invented misogyny. I mean, it was oppressive and repressive and depressive and suppressive to women, and then Jesus comes along and invents feminism in the pantsuit, so that any time Jesus talks to a woman, that's looked at as progressive, and that's a false depiction of early Judaism, and it's also a false depiction of Jesus. To the contrary, the New Testament tells us that Jewish women owned their own homes, had access to their own funds, had freedom of travel, appear in synagogues and in the Jerusalem temple, speak out in public, and nobody ever goes, oh my Lord, it's a woman in public. So this is a type of bearing false witness against Jews and Judaism in order to make Jesus look good, when in fact he looks just fine on his own without a negative Jewish context. Or the idea that Jewish purity laws were totally oppressive and Jesus does away with them, so that in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, when the priest and the Levite walk by the fellow in the road, the standard modern Christian interpretation is, oh, they're following Jewish purity laws. As if Jewish law says it's okay to leave somebody dying by the side of the road, how absurd and how disgusting and how historically inaccurate. That's just two. There are more. I, I suspect there are. I have never heard that before. About the, what, what purity law would they assume the Samaritan would be breaking, or the, the Levite? Well, sure. Um, corpses are sources of ritual impurity, as are many things, like um, ejaculation, which you know happens a fair amount if you're lucky, um, or menstruation, or childbirth. Um, So uh, there is a law that says if you are a priest, and priesthood in Judaism is an inherited position. If your dad's a priest, you're a priest. Um, In Christianity, it's a vocation. Um, The priests are not supposed to come into contact with corpses unless it's the corpse of an immediate relative, like a parent, a child, a spouse, or a sibling. But there's no such law incumbent on a Levite. Moreover, some laws are, are, so the idea is the priest is following Jewish law, and since, uh, and since uh, corpses do put you in a state of ritual impurity, um, the Levite is avoiding the corpse. But, but that sort of interpretation would presume that, you know, Jews just left corpses by the side of the road and nobody got buried, which is a little silly. Um, there's no such law about corpse, uh, touching corpses for Levites. Um, some laws are always more important than other laws, which is why in Mark 12, for example, a scribe can come up to Jesus and say, what's the greatest commandment? There are 613, so you need to know what the weightier ones are and the less weightier ones are. Um, saving a life is one of, one of the major commandments. In Hebrew, it's called pekuat nefesh. I mean, you have to save a life. Um, uh, so the priest and the Levite are not following the law at all. So what this particular reading about purity does is it makes purity laws look silly, which is bad for practicing Jews. It's also bad for Muslims who are also practicing certain purity concerns. Um, It makes Judaism look heartless, and it takes Jesus out of his Jewish context rather than correctly locates him within the Jewish context, where, in fact, he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law. It's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, what Jesus does with the law is make it more rigorous rather than less. 
The law says don't kill. Jesus says don't be angry. The law says don't commit adultery. Jesus says don't think about it. That's harder. And let's leave it at that, but we are going to continue next week, AJ. So so we'll remember this conversation. <laughs> Excellent. But it has been a, a fabulous uh, half hour with you, and, and uh, uh, I am inviting you back next week, and we will we will continue, all right? Excellent. Thank you. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Professor Amy Jill Levine. She is the co-author of The Bible With and Without Jesus. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Professor Amy Jill Levine. She is the author of the book, The Bible with and Without Jesus, which she co-authored with Mark Brettler. A little bit about our guest. A.J. Levine is Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Vanderbilt University. She holds a bachelor's from Smith College and an M.A. and Ph.D. from Duke University, along with multiple honorary doctorates from several schools. Her books include The Misunderstood Jew, The Church and the Scandal of the Jewish Jesus, Short Stories by Jesus, The Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi, The Meaning of the Bible, 
what the Jewish scriptures and the Christian Old Testament can teach us, along with several children's books. So we welcome once again to Common Threads, A.J. Levine. Hi, A.J. Hi, nice to be back with you. Thank you. Uh, Listen, last week we ended with you talking about some of the things. We were talking about the uh, the uh, annotated, hang on, let me get the, the uh, correct title, the Jewish Annotated New Testament. Um, and you talked about some of the ways that elements in the New Testament can be uh, uh, interpreted as being anti-Semitic, and you offer new opportunities. You, you look through at these uh, stories with a new lens. And for instance, last week we talked about the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, and I'm going to bet that in that book you also talk about the stereotype of the wrathful God of the Old Testament versus the God of love in the New Testament. And yes, it's true, you can look at the Hebrew Bible, and there, there is uh, some smiting going on there, but I suspect that it's much, much deeper and more complicated than that. I'd like you to uh, present on that. Sure. Um, I get that, that type of, of thought from, from a number of my students, and I've heard it from a number of folks uh, in churches where I work. I mean, the sad thing is I've sometimes heard that from Jews who are unfamiliar with not only their own Bible, but their own interpretation. Um, When you get this Old Testament God of wrath versus New Testament God of love, it's part of a larger package, which is Old Testament law, New Testament grace, Old Testament failure, New Testament success, and so on. Um, And not only is this unfortunate and inaccurate stereotyping, it's also technically a Christian heresy. Uh, It's called Marcionism. It's presuming that the Old Testament God is not the same one as the New Testament God, and that's just silly. Uh, because the God who created the world is the same God to whom Jesus taught his followers to pray, our Father, same God. Um, When I get that nonsense from my students, I'm inclined to engage in what's called proof texting, which is you just lift up a verse out of context and make it do what you need it to do. So I say, fine, Uh, the Lord is my shepherd who leads me beside still waters and restores my soul, which is Psalm 23. But you are condemned to the outer darkness where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth which is Jesus. Um, you know, we have uh, uh, Adam and Eve who, who were threatened with death, but they get to live on for another couple of centuries. Uh, Cain is a murderer, but he gets a mark of protection, and he actually manages to find a wife and build a city. We get mercy all over the place. And then you get to the book of Revelation, where the world is destroyed one and one-third times. So it, it's cherry-picking, um, and it's, it's making one type of God look good by making another text God look bad. And that's, it's a very, very nasty game. Um, another thing that we lose with this is a number of my students and, and my friends think that if they just look at the Old Testament, I'm using the Christian term here, they understand what Judaism is, um, without realizing that Judaism, the Judaism of the time of Jesus, the Judaism indeed of today, is not the text, it's the interpretation of the text. And if you look at rabbinic interpretation, they go out of their way not to engage in holy war and not to promote violence and uh, and to contextualize those more problematic passages. You know, it's interesting when you when you when we talk about this particular issue, the Old Testament God versus New Testament God. It reminds me of the one woman show that uh, Julia Sweeney did. Have you ever seen that from Saturday Night Live? She's an alum. I remember Julia Sweeney, but I don't know the one-woman show. Okay. It is 
a one-woman show where she uh, offers her spiritual journey from Catholicism to atheism. And in that, she talks about one day just deciding to read the Bible. And when she is reading the Hebrew portion of the Bible, uh, she is seeing, uh, you know, uh, her interpretation is this somewhat wrathful, spiteful deity. And she keeps saying, oh, once I get to the New Testament, everything's going to be fine. And she finds out that it isn't. And that is one thing that led her to become an atheist. Uh, so she she sees the similar things that you see. Unfortunately, she did not have... I shouldn't say unfortunately, it's her spiritual path. She, she can go where she needs to. But she did not have the context that you have to see that that ain't necessarily so in in either case so uh, belief in god yeah. right but belief in god is really not something that, that should be argued by an intellectual uh, um, adventure of sorts because it's not logical um it's belief in god is not like sudoku right if you just had a pencil and an eraser everybody could get the right answer belief in god is like love and love has nothing to do with logic it's something that speaks to your heart um, where the academics comes in is once you've got the belief, then you can backtrack and say, well, let me make my belief stronger by reading these texts which which were written by other believers who had these particular views, and then you can put those into dialogue. Like, you, you fall in love, then you go to marriage counseling to make it stronger. Um, but if there's if there's no belief that's there to begin with, or if the belief is really shaky— um, the Bible could take you farther into belief, or it can take you out of it. But that's where your heart is inclined anyway. Good point. I, I certainly agree. You brought up uh, last week, you brought up proof texting. Uh, th- that is a term that I've not heard before, but I've experienced millions of times. And you, you make a case for and again uh, in the book. W- when is proof texting appropriate, and when does it get you into trouble? <laughs> it depends upon who your audience is. Um, (laughs) If if you want to make a point and you have a text that will support your point, then you cite your particular text, and sometimes you will yank it out of context. But we do that all the time, um, because certain verses speak to us and other verses don't. Um, So you can make a wonderful argument uh, by yanking a text out of context and redeploying it elsewhere. Um, That's, in fact, what the New Testament frequently does when it cites from, quote-unquote, the Old Testament, again, using the Christian term. Uh, so uh, it's reading the Greek translation of Isaiah about a virgin conceiving, and then Matthew goes, oh, yes, I can, I can attach that to the Christ. That helps me explain uh, the conception of Jesus. We see people, uh, th- like the Dead Sea Scrolls, they take what the prophet Habakkuk says, or the prophet Nahum, and they says, oh, it really means not their own time centuries ago. It's really speaking to our time today. We're always doing that. Anybody who opens the Bible to get a particular message for that day, that's proof texting. And it works. I mean, God forbid you'd open to Job. <laughs> you want to, you know, you want to open to a psalm or something like that. Um, you know, where Song of Songs would be great. Um, but you're always taking, te- we're always taking texts out of context, because in part, people who look to the Bible for inspiration or for the divine word, that word has to mean something to them in their own present circumstances. It can't just be an historical artifact. Uh, tell me, how far back does the tradition of the synagogue go? So the, the synagogue and the temple coexisted, right? Correct. Uh, okay. How, do we know how far back the synagogue goes? And 
what what that what was the difference uh, between the synagogue and the temple? Was the temple purely for sacrifice, and you didn't get any spiritual education there? For there, you had to go to the synagogue. Is is or is that too simplistic? That's too simplistic. <laughs> As, as much of the stuff that we have in, in biblical studies is, right? It's hard to reduce it. Uh, the temple is—there uh, were—way back in ancient Israel, there were lots of places where you could do sacrifices, which is how, say, the prophet Elijah gets to sacrifice on, on Mount Carmel, for example, or Abraham can offer a sacrifice. Uh, but eventually, under King Josiah um, in the late 7th century, which means the 600s BCE, um, Josiah— uh, basically centralized sacrificial worship in Jerusalem. So the temple becomes the place where you offer animal sacrifices, but it's also the place where you you would go for pilgrimage, um, the tradition of singing the Hallel Psalms as you, as you, as you singing as you came up to Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem, right? You could be on the moon, you go up to Jerusalem. Um, it's also a place of prayer. It's a place of instruction, which is, we, for example, see Jesus teaching in the temple, and he, he would not have been the only one. Um, it's a place for family reunions. It's a place where you could celebrate the majesty of God, and at the time of Jesus, you could celebrate, um, God, we're Jews. We've got this fabulous building. This looks great, because when King Herod the Great redid the temple, it's massive reconstruction. He built it in part as a tourist attraction, so even Gentiles would come and go, wow! great temple. Um, so it becomes a site also of, of Jewish ethnic pride and, and Jewish resistance to assimilation to the broader concerns of the Roman Empire. Uh, it's the National Bank. Um, it's a place where you could make donations to the poor, knowing that, that, mater- that those funds would be appropriately redistributed. Um, so it, it's, it's a huge number of different things. Synagogues, it's a Greek term. Uh, syn, like synapse or synthesis, just means to come together. And ago means to gather. So it's basically a gathering place, a place where people come together. Um, or think of like a fellowship hall or a vestry. Um, so it's a place of prayer. It's a place where the Torah was read and discussed and interpreted. Um, it's a place where people gathered for social concerns. Um, but it's not a place where you sacrifice animals. It's not a place of sacrifice. So the temple and the synagogue have very different concerns. Most Jews would have only gone to the temple during pilgrimage festivals, you know, unless you lived in Jerusalem and wanted to go there. Some may have only gone once. Some may never have gone in their lives, but synagogues are all over the place. They were outside of Palestine back then? Uh, yeah. Uh, we've got examples of synagogues uh, in Dura Europis, in, on the island of Delos, um, the book of Acts talks about Paul visiting various synagogues uh, in the Eastern diaspora and then moving west. Um, synagogues in Rome. So yeah, okay. and when you have Jews, you have synagogues. No. Because it's really hard to be a Jew just by yourself. You kind of want to be a Jew in community. Yeah, I, I've heard that that's virtually impossible. Uh, it's very difficult. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I was told that uh, as a Jew, you, you go to a, a new place, you're, you're, you're pretty much required to find, find other Jews. I mean, that's, just, that, that's what it, it's told. It's a good me. idea. Yeah, yeah. It's a good idea. Uh, so do you think the Bible would have survived all this time if the meaning, if the, all of these things that we're talking about, all of these things that seem uh, on one level contradictory. If the Bible was absolutely clear, uh, how do you think uh, it would have survived in these thousands of years? 
I don't think any text is absolutely clear. <laughs> Um, the, the Bible is, is, is not just law, and law requires interpretation. So if somebody says, don't kill, then you have to figure out, well, what about self-defense, and what about if it's armed conflict, and uh, can you pull the plug on somebody if the person is brain dead, but the organs are still living? And so you always have to have interpretation of this material. Um, don't steal. Well, you know, what if you're starving? Um, it, you know, is it okay to rob somebody who's robbed from you? Um, what counts as stealing? is inheritance stealing and so on. So we always need interpretation. And anytime you have a story, um, whether it's Adam and Eve or the story of King David, which already in the Bible is told in different ways between the Deuteronomic historian who gives us First and Second Samuel and the chronicler, stories are always open to multiple interpretations. That's why English teachers still have jobs. That's why people still teach law. Nothing is perfectly clear. And even if you say, well, AJ, it is, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Well, then the, the next question is, well, why did that have to happen and how exactly did it work? So even things that are clear, people will still raise questions. Good point. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah, that's absolutely. a very good thing. I, I remember um, a story, the true story, that there was a Buddhist-Catholic dialogue. So you had these monks... Uh, and and priests, and they were observing one another's scriptures. And the Catholics looked at the Buddhist scriptures, and they found multiple contradictions in question. How can you have so many apparent contradictions? And the response from one of the Buddhist teachers was, well, that makes it uh, much harder to become dogmatic, doesn't it? So. <laughs> That's very nice. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. My name is Fred Stella, and with me today is Dr. Amy Jill Levine, and we're talking about the book that she co-authored with Mark Brettler, which is The Bible with and Without Jesus. Um, tell us about what is the pressure, and how, why is it important? Tesher is, is biblical interpretation. It's a genre that we begin to find quite clearly among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and some of them are actually named Pesher, like the Pesher to Habakkuk or the Pesher to Nahum. Um, and there are attempts to show how ancient prophecy is fulfilled uh, during the time of the person who's writing the Pesher. So it would be similar to you pick up a biblical text today and you say, oh, Isaiah is speaking directly to me today in my own circumstances. This was the word that God wanted me to hear today. That would be a pressure interpretation. And, and that's okay. What's because that? otherwise, it, we need something like that, because otherwise the text remains an historical artifact that cannot speak through the generations. That does make sense. Um Talking about the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, uh, does Jesus or, or John the Baptist appear there? Or is that... Nope. <laughs> nope. Or, or at least, as some of my friends say, not yet. Maybe they'll still find one, but no. Does it, uh, does it happen... Y you take part in a number of interfaith panels, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, does it happen that you are in panels that go beyond, say, Jews, Christians, do you sometimes dialogue with Muslims? And when you dialogue with Muslims, are, uh, are you studied enough in the Quran to be able to dialogue about the stories that, uh, that appear in the Hebrew Bible 
and also have a version in the Quran. And I'm curious right. as to as to uh, what the outcome may be. Often, I, I'm assuming that you have different outcomes at different panels and different dialogues. But if you could share a little bit on that, I'd be curious. Sure. Um, I haven't done a number of, of trialogues. That would be the technical term or the so-called Abrahamic faith conversations. Uh, recently, um, when I have, they've usually been focused on a particular theme. So you don't have to have, I did not have to have complete knowledge of, of both the Quran and the Hadith and the rest of the Islamic tradition in order to participate. I can tell you what normally happened is the Jews and the Muslims landed on one side of the table and the Christians landed on the other side of the table because the Trinity proved to be a stumbling block. Um, Jews, and Christ, Jews and Muslims have, have a legal-based uh, religious tradition um, with certain ritual actions that every, in which everybody uh, practicing Muslims and Jews engage, um, and Christians much less so. So Jews and Muslims technically have more in common, although Jesus and Mary do show up in, in, in Muslim writings. I stopped doing that for the most part uh, because I felt uncomfortable uh, trying to talk about a religion in which I cannot read the material in the original. And the more I work in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, uh, the more important I find that primary source work to be, because all translations are traitors anyway. And since I cannot read Arabic, which was my fault when my graduate professor said, you know, after you've done the, the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the Latin and the Syriac and the Coptic and the French and the German and the smattering of Italian you need, it's time to learn um, Arabic. And I said, no, it's not, because I didn't think I could stuff another language into my brain. So I, I can't read Arabic, and therefore I'm not quite qualified fully to participate in a trialogue agenda, because I can't read the sources in the original. So... When you read any translation of either the uh, Hebrew Bible or the New Testament, does it frustrate you thinking, oh gosh, this, uh, this poor uneducated person, I mean, he may have a, a PhD in, in, in computer science, but this person who does not, is not able to really see the language as I do it, is not getting what he or she should get out of this passage. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, I, I would flip the question around and say, I'm just glad the person's reading the passage to begin with. <laughs> That's a start. <laughs> That's a start. Uh, but there are a number of annotated Bibles, like the Jewish annotated Bible, New Testament or the Jewish Study Bible, uh, that provide in the notes alternative translations where they are particularly important. Um, and there are some translators, um, Robert Alter's new translation of, of the Hebrew Bible, for example, where he's very, very sensitive to the puns that, that Hebrew contains. Yeah, you know, I've heard that they're there, but I've never never been exposed to them. Maybe one or two along the line, but that is one I would, I would enjoy. Um, well, as we talked about last week, you can play with wind and breath and spirit. It's a marvelous pun. Speaking of which, that goes back to when we were talking about Adam and Eve. Uh, so in these last few minutes, why don't we talk about, because this is, of course, very foundational, the, the Jewish interpretation of the story of the paradise and the fall and the Christian understanding of the paradise and the fall and, and how everything ended up for, for both religions. <laughs> I have to rephrase your question again, because Jews don't have a notion of a fall um, with fall here meaning some sort of irreparable breach between humanity and divinity that, that only the death of the Christ can, can resolve. 
<clears throat> so uh, you might, and there's also more than one Jewish reading. So as soon as you say the Jewish reading, some other Jew's going to come around and say, "Yeah, but what about so and so and so and so?" Um, so Jews actually glory in multiple readings, um, uh, and it, it, when Christians are reading the, the Old Testament, again using the Christian term, uh, most of that is not multiple. Most of it is just driving to the Christ. Um, so Jews is, is kind of like an original opportunity. God said, "Don't eat the fruit." They ate the fruit. Um, they don't drop dead. They live for another couple of hundred years. Um, when they exit Eden, God goes with them, um, and the first thing he does is get pregnant, which strikes me as highly optimistic. Um, and, and God remains with the people, I mean, through Noah um, and to Abraham and so on through the covenant community. Um, so part of this is that Adam and Eve, after the first couple of chapters of Genesis, they don't show up again in the Tanakh, in the Jewish scriptures. But when you get to the New Testament, they start showing up again. So in Paul's epistle to the Romans, uh, chapter 5, he talks about through one man, meaning Adam, sin comes into the world and therefore death, so that through another man, meaning the Christ, meaning Jesus, um, you know, life can come back and grace can re-enter. When you get up to 1 Timothy, a letter ascribed to Paul in the New Testament, 1 Timothy announces, well, you know, the man, meaning Adam, was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So now you start getting this blame put on Eve um, and questions about how men and women are supposed to be in terms of you know equality versus uh, superior subordinate status. So because Adam and Eve reappear in the New Testament, they're more important than Christianity than they are in Judaism. Judaism is much more interested in Torah from Moses. And, and one other thing that you say in the book, you say that, uh, and I don't have the quote right in front of me, but you indicate that to, to Jews, the Scripture is not as important as the interpretation. And in, in, in Christianity, it's the Scripture. But how can Scripture not be interpreted? You know, what, what, are they, what are the Jews doing? Right. Well, what are the um, Jews and doing? That- so the quote is not entirely accurate. Um, you know, some Christians have a very strong interpretive history, and you see that in Eastern Orthodoxy. You see it in the Roman Catholic Church um, with developed uh, material, say, on the Virgin Mary, or questions of canon law in the magisterium. But there was a drive with Martin Luther and some of the Protestant reformers um, Luther had this, this motto of sola scriptura, so going back to the scripture and getting rid of all that, that uh, what he considered to be unnecessary accretions um, that Jews had put on via the Talmud and that Catholics had put on uh, via later Catholic uh, legal systems and, and doctrinal developments. So it's a kind of Protestant view um, that says just go back, and, it's, and what the text means is, is what you personally, you the individual reader, get from it. What is your next project, AJ? Can you give us a sneak um, I'm preview? Right, <laughs> yeah, right. I'm right now trying to finish up a book for Abingdon Press on the difficult sayings of Jesus, like um, comments about hell, um, uh, to the comment in John chapter 8 about the Jews, your children of the devil, statements about sell all you have and give to the poor, um, questions about you have to hate your family, um, so what do these statements mean in their own context? How have they been interpreted over time? And I'm having lots of fun writing it, because these are really juicy passages. 
Um, and then I've got another big book I want to write on Jesus is in draft uh, for Harper, who's our publisher for the Bible with and without Jesus. And it's not a what would Jesus do book, because I don't think that's a helpful question. Jesus doesn't live in, the, in a participatory democracy in the 21st century. But rather, um, how do stories Jesus told like parables and stories told about Jesus like the healing narratives, how do they help us think through contemporary problems? And that's that sense of how the Bible continues to speak to us and how an ancient text still provides instruction, uh, not necessarily to give us the right answer, but rather to help us ask the right questions. And asking the right questions, I think, can help us today refocus some of our energies from just spinning out of control or going down those those echo chambers um, and engaging us better in uh, speaking to people with whom we might have some sort of disagreement to say, what is the common good that we are striving for? I'm glad you explained that first one, the difficult sayings of Jesus. I, I was assuming you were talking about difficult to pronounce Aramaic words, but that's not it at all, is it? I have no problem with pronouncing <laughs> Aramaic words. Thank you very much. <laughs> AJ, it has been a wonderful, uh, wonderful conversation today and last week as well. I want to thank you so much for uh, being with us, sharing your time. You are just a joy of an interviewer. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thanks, Mom. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we appreciate you too as well, AJ. Uh, so we have been speaking with Professor AJ Levine, and uh, her book is The Bible With and Without Jesus. It's co-authored with Mark Brettler. Please join us again next week here on WGVU.